Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Economics. Economics is the foundation of uh, everything. Uh, It's the economy, stupid, Bill Clinton famously said. Our lives are controlled by economics, but then economists are specialists, talk a particular language, have a particular way of viewing the world. So understanding the economy, distinguishing between sound economic ideas, common sense, mumbo-jumbo. That's really, really important. If you're not able to distinguish between a good economic idea and a bad economic idea, then you are victim. You're probably the victim of bad economic ideas. Uh, So, Guy Standing is a brilliant person to lead us through the challenges uh, of thinking about economics. Guy is Professorial Research Associate at SOAS. He's a founding member and honorary co-president of the Basic Income Earth Network. His latest book, Plunder of the Commons, is a manifesto for sharing public wealth. Uh, Guy, in that book, he explores the dominant economic forces of recent years, a plunder the resources that we should share in common. He lays out a radical vision of the changes needed to tackle injustice, secure our rights, and live flourishing lives. Guy's going to talk for no more than 10 minutes. I'm going to ask him a couple of questions, and then we're going to bring you in. So please, he's also lost his voice. So, Which all economists should do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, but he'll get it back for the next 10 minutes at least. So please welcome Doug Standing. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. On November the 6th, 1217, two charters were sealed in Westminster. One has gone down as the Magna Carta. The other one was also called the Magna Carta but it's known as the Charter of the Forest. And it is extremely important because constitutionally it established that every member of society had a right to subsistence and the commons belonged to everybody equally, as rough equals. And it established the first environmental set of rules for preserving the commons and commoning. For hundreds of years, every church in England had to read out the whole of the Charter of the Forest four times a year. It was that important. But now, of course, it's quietly forgotten. Because what it did was establish that all of us as commoners had equal rights to the public resources. And the public resources include all nature the land, the forests, the sea, the air, the water, and social amenities that have been inherited and passed down from generation to generation. Now, what we've seen over the centuries is a plunder of our commons, which have been taken away first by enclosure, which was arbitrary taking of land, and by neglect, and by commodification of things that belong to us. And latterly, since Thatcher came into office in the 1980s and since then, a massive privatization of all our commons. And ironically, when I was writing this book, looking at how the different aspects of our commons have been taken away from us, illegitimately, without compensation to us as commoners, I came to realize that what is the extraordinary story that has developed in the last 20 years or 30 years 
is a colonization of our commons. More and more of our land is owned by foreign equity capital and oligarchs. Our water has been privatized and is now owned mainly by private foreign equity. Our air is increasingly commodified and is being owned by private capital from abroad. And latterly, some of you may have seen that recently there's been an auction of our seabed. It's our seabed. And yet, they're auctioning off great tranches of it to multinationals who will be able to make a profit from our seabed. And the royalties will go to the Queen and the Crown Estate. It's our commons. And what I'm proposing in this book is that now we need a new charter of the commons to recover the commons, to revive the commons, and to compensate the commoners, you and me, for the loss of our commons. And it has 44 articles, and I don't have time, you'll be glad to know, to go through all of those articles. But the principles are vital to understand. Basically, we should say that if you have land, you should be paying a levy to the commoners to compensate. Instead, we have a system where someone like the Duke of Bluclos, I love saying that, the Duke of Bluclos, has 277,000 acres solely because he is the 10th descendant of an illegitimate child of Charles II. And every year the government gives him huge subsidies to help him keep his land. Lord, of ba Lord Bathurst, who is a major donor of the Conservative Party, has a mere 14,000 acres and he has received something like eight or nine million pounds in subsidy to help him look after his land. But you can go on. Think of the Forestry Commission, the biggest state holder of land. Set up in 1919, in 2011, the government quietly announced it was going to privatize the Forestry Commission. Fortunately, that was stopped, but since then, they have sold off over 11,000 hectares of our forest, and it's gone to foreign companies. In addition, they are introducing luxury cabins in part of our forests, which they're renting to a private company at a ridiculous low rent, and they're charging £4,000 a week for these luxury cabins in our forests. We have 27,000 parks in this country. A survey two years ago showed that as a result of austerity and budget cuts, 92% of the managers of our parks say they're having to sell off or commercialize part of the parks in order to try to meet their maintenance costs. And then you go to things like our social commons. We have a phenomenon which is known, and I've written about it in the book, called POPs. POPs means privately owned public spaces. If you go to your town or your city, you will find that in the last 25 years, a vast amount of our streets and squares 
have been privatized and sold to companies that are introducing their own civil laws, contrary to the civil commons, where everybody should be treated equally before the law, where you can't enter those public spaces and do what you can in other spaces. It goes on with intellectual property. Intellectual property is essentially a device to privatize ideas. And this was hugely extended in 1994 with the passage of TRIPS. And what TRIPS did was globalize the American intellectual property rights regime. So patents have multiplied across the world. Patents give a person who's patented it, usually a, a big multinational, a monopoly profit to that idea for 20 years so nobody else can make any money from it. And of course they can charge exorbitant prices. Much of the patents that have taken place, and we now have about 14 million patents in place operating at this very instant, are the result of publicly funded research. So it's a lie to say that the patent, the intellectual property right, is a reward for risk. It's actually a privatizing of rental income. And you can go through various other parts of the commons which have been lost or enclosed or commodified. And as it goes on, we are seeing the worst thing of all. I just been, the book has just been delivered, and on my way here I thought, well, which bit do I find interesting myself? And actually the chapter that's driven me mad on my way here is the loss of our civil commons. Established with Magna Carta and the Charter of the Forest, everybody should be treated equally before the law. Everybody should have the right of representation. Everybody should be, have the right of due process. In other words, if you're charged with something, you have to have the right to answer, the right to have representation, and the right for a fair trial by independent means. Think just of one thing, universal credit. Universal credit is punishing hundreds of thousands of our fellow citizens by sanctions taking away their benefit because you were late for an interview or you weren't proving to me I'm your bureaucrat, you haven't proved to me that you've looked hard enough for a job. I'm going to take it away. Now, whether that's right or not, it fails the test of due process established with Magna Carta because they're not given any right of representation. They're not given a chance to answer independently. They can be going without benefits for a year, do not be surprised with the following fact. We have rising mortality rates among middle age and young men in particular, and women, but more among men. The first time in our history, a prolonged period, when average life expectancy is declining in this country, the fifth wealthiest country in the world. Now, I'm going to end because I'm sure you'd like me to finish. I had the dubious distinction of being asked to share a platform with a certain man called Boris Johnson. It was in March. In March, and I was in the VIP lounge with this certain Boris Johnson 
for most of the day because our two speeches were, were towards the end. And I got into a long argument with this man and he denied ever standing before a bus boasting about saving the country 350 million. I had my computer with me and it took me 30 seconds to disprove his lie, but he did say one thing on which I would like to end. He said, Guy, I have less chance of becoming British Prime Minister than Narendra Modi. We were about to meet Narendra Modi, who is the Prime Minister of India. And I turned to him, this was in March, and I said, well, that's the first piece of good news you've given me, Boris, all day. Unfortunately, like so many other things he said, it was a lie. Thank you very much. Thank you, Guy. Want some water. Okay, I'm going to ask Guy two or three questions, and you must ask him questions. We don't have a great deal of time, so I'll ask short questions, and Guy can give short answers, and then we'll bring you in. So, first question, Guy. When, we, when you do this contrast between private ownership, corporate ownership, multinational ownership, and public ownership, you do it in a way which makes us think, oh, that's us, the public, but it actually is the state. So uh, help us distinguish between state control and ownership, which I'm old enough to remember when it wasn't terribly popular because in many ways it didn't work all that brilliantly. It was very bureaucratic, very slow, uh, and, and kind of public ownership in common. How do we get that right? I think that's a, that's a perfectly good question. The, the key point here is that you must distinguish between private property, state property, and commons. The essential attribute of a commons is it doesn't belong to anybody in particular. It doesn't belong to the crown. It doesn't belong to the government. It doesn't belong to you or me. It belongs to all of us and to none of us. The air is part of our commons. And if you privatize the air or allow the encroachment on our air, we should demand that the commoners, all of us, should be compensated. You take air pollution and greenhouse gas emissions, we all can work it out pretty easily that it's an, a regressive development. The people who predominantly cause the pollution and the loss of our air are the richer people who use airplanes more, cars more, etc., etc. Whereas the people who lose are those living in low-income areas under flight paths into, in, in urban centers. And that is why their life is being shortened by cancers and so on. We should demand that a levy be on all misuses of our air. I give an example in the book, an extraordinary one that is not really recognized, which is these luxury cruise liners that go into our ports, like Southampton. They sit in those ports for days, keeping their diesel engines going all the time. And there is huge amount of scientific evidence that as a result of this phenomenon, there's a huge increase in throat cancers, I hope I've not got that today, a huge increase in other forms of cancers in the whole surrounding area. We should demand a levy on all fuel uses so that the commoners can be compensated. I heard somebody in the audience in the last discussion saying that we should have high greenhouse gas emission taxes and re recycle them as 
what I call in the book common dividends. I think we can levy on all encroachments on our commons, and that is just one example. Okay, thanks, Guy. So, um, uh, just one more question for you. There isn't, it's, there's nothing worse for a, a, a performer than people uh, playing in, who's playing their new album to be asked to play hits from their old album. But even though you are promoting your new book, which is available in the bookshop, uh, you're also known as someone who's been an advocate of universal basic income for many years, and that's been a subject of another book that you've written. Just give the room a kind of one-minute one minute update of where the universal basic income movement has got to, because I, I can't imagine that in your lifetime there's been so much momentum as there is now. No, I'm very excited by it. John McDonnell has now supported my report uh, advocating pilots that if the Labour Party is elected, there will be pilots launched in different parts of Just the country. Just tell people what it is for anybody. I, I will, I will. And what a basic income is, that is every individual, man, woman, and child, would receive a modest, regular payment from the state. Not enough to live in comfortably, but at least a return on the collective wealth. And there are three ethical reasons why I believe that should be done. It would be an individual, unconditional right, an economic right of being a citizen of this country and legal migrants if you want to recognize them. And there are three ethical reasons. The first ethical reason is that it's a matter of social justice. The wealth and income of every single one of us in this room is far more to do with the efforts and achievements of the many generations before us than anything you or I do for ourselves. And in a sense, if you allow private inheritance, which I have noticed is what is allowed in gallops, then we should have a social justice justification for small, modest, common dividends that everybody receives as a right. The second reason is that a basic income would enhance freedom. We've done pilots in various car parts of the world, and one of the great things is that the emancipatory value of a basic income is greater than the money value. It gives people a sense of control of their lives. It gives people a chance to say no in oppressive relationships or exploitative employers. It gives people a chance to face other people as citizens of equal status. And the third reason, and I know he's wanting no, no, me to no, stop. Just place uh, the third reason, oh, sorry, the third reason is that a basic income, even a modest amount, would give us a sense of basic security. Basic security is a public good. Your having it doesn't deprive me of it. In fact, if we all have it, its value goes up for everybody. And basic security is a human need. The psychologists have taught us, or they should have taught us, that people who have insecurity, which is a modern disaster, have a suffering of their mental bandwidth. In other words, their IQ goes down. If you are chronically insecure, you lose the capacity to make decisions rationally and optimally. The sense of moving to a society where everybody had basic income security would increase that mental bandwidth. And it would also increase tolerance and altruism towards the other. It would increase social solidarity. For me, it has to be the answer for the breakdown of our income distribution system. 
I will end with one statistic. I know it's not a day for statistics, but in the 1970s, private riches, private wealth in this country equaled about 300% of our national income. Today, it is worth about 700% of our national income. And in the same time, public wealth diminished from about 50% of GDP to a negative value today. We need a mechanism to change our distribution system so that everybody has a better share of the income and wealth of our country. That's my justification. Thank you. Uh, and we're talking a lot in this tent today about hope, so it's really important when you hear Guy talk about that, that you uh, are aware of the fact that there's a major basic income experiment in Finland, there are experiments in America, there are experiments in Africa, they're piloting it in Scotland, in various other cities in England. So this is an idea that is being taken forward and piloted and tested, as well as um, a, a great vision for the future. Who's got some qu a question for Guy? Okay, can we have short, sharp questions, because we've only got about eight minutes, and I'll take... Groups of three, so guy, you have to remember three, then pick one or two. Okay, go. Hi, my name is Fabian. Um, I do understand that um, private wealth is much higher now here and in Germany and in France, any Western country, because globalization has made it much more easy to become rich through global trade. And that uh, the public is getting poorer, you said 50% of um, GDP in UK. However, much richer have become also the really poor in, in Asia, etc. So how does basic income work all over the world for everybody and who would pay for that? Okay, and pass the mic to the uh, lady behind you. Hi, um, how do we begin to assemble, tell us what to do, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. That doesn't count as a question, so we'll take four. Uh, there's uh, uh, oh, the there. That is a question. Oh, no, it is a question. Yeah, come. Um, you touched on sort of agricultural subsidies and things like that, and common good. Do you not believe in comparative advantage and somewhat? The monetary system is a knowledge transfer system. So if someone specialises in agriculture farms that land and then passes, I would argue that's the public good that that is providing, that we all get cheap food and cheap food policy. And how would that work if, you know, if we all had our little acre of land, we wouldn't have time to do all our other jobs? Okay, so two questions and then kind of how do we organise? Go. Uh, you got, if you answer those quickly, Guy, can take some No, no, no. The, 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 the answer to the first and third uh, point is this. It is incorrect to say that trade is the main generator of wealth and, and riches. It's property rights having triumphed over free markets. When they say we've got a free market system, they're telling a big whopper. We have the most unfree market economy today that's ever existed. If you established intellectual property rights, you give rentier incomes to the owners of property. And that is what's happened. So for example, the big five technology giants buy up hundreds of other companies solely to get their patents and copyright and industrial designs in order to accumulate their rent seeking. 
Now, what we have at the moment is a system which is entrenching a tiny minority who have benefited from the privatization of our commons, from the colonization of our commons. I didn't realize that large parts of our rivers, our rivers, have been privatized and colonized by rentiers, by private equity corporations like BlackRock, which are now making vast income from renting our own rivers to other people. This sort of system which goes on with POPs, it goes on with iconic public buildings that have been privatized and converted into hotels or whatever, all of these things are part of a system of rentier capitalism. And we have to dismantle that system by having a new income distribution system because wages alone will not provide adequate incomes in the future. And how do we organize? How do we organize? For me, we have to be aware of what is happening, first of all. We have to rebel. That's why I love the Extinction Rebellion. I'm a 100% supporter. We have to realize that the precariat is growing everywhere and the precariat is beginning to find its voice in strange ways but it is organizing in different ways the trade unions just don't get it they haven't taken up the commons if any time it comes to a choice between the ecology and jobs you know which way they will go and unfortunately we need new organizations but they are happening in a sense we being here today is part of this new collective awareness and collective mobilization of our energies. But we must not let the elite and the rentiers defeat us. We can forge an alternative. Thank you, Guy. So. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.